we are uh, continuing on in our uh, series in Revelation that we've been uh, calling Hope Rising. And this series, hold on just a second. Um, uh, we, you know, we talked talk before that Revelation is one of those books that, um, you know, there's a lot of crazy conspiracy theories around it. I, I remember uh, several years ago when I was at a different church, there was a, a guy that popped into my office one day and I'd never met him before. And he just sits down and he starts telling me about, well, you know, uh, you know, if you look in the book of Revelation, there are actually, you know, aliens and UFOs, you know, at Calvary when Jesus was on the cross and, you know, this whole thing. And I'm like, oh, you got extra pages in your Bible than I have in mine, you know, that sort of thing. And so there's all, you know, a lot of times it just brings out all these crazy theories and, and speculation and things like that. And, and it has unfortunately become, I mean, it is, let's not, you know, uh, fool ourselves. It is the most difficult book of the Bible to understand, but um, but it was meant to. It was written as a word of of hope and a word of encouragement to the church. And instead, it's kind of been hijacked into you know all of these uh, you know crazy theories and speculation about the end times and arguments and different views and 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 it's got so lost in all the controversy that we I think we've completely lost sight of the hope and encouragement that's there. And so the whole goal of this series is not to say this is the way you should read it and believe it, but rather to uh, preach it as the hope and encouragement that it was meant to be. And I think uh, if you stick with this series, you're, you're going to find yourself greatly encouraged, especially in light of the times that we're living in right now and the political climate and everything else. I, I think it's got a great word uh, to us. It really is It's funny. I've, I've found over the years uh, since I've been at Living Hope that you know, I'll, I'll feel God really impress a series on my heart and, uh, and, and plan that series. And then once I start that series, what I'll notice is, uh, other pastors around the country, it seems like are, have also been led to that same series. It seems like God has this habit of, of guiding the church, you know, universal towards a similar message, uh, you know, depending on what the times are. And, and I found that since I started preaching this, uh, a lot of other churches are doing very similar series right now. It just seems like it's the message that God needs for us to hear uh, at this time in our lives. And so I'm really excited about it. Um, so if you're new to Living Hope, if this is your first time here and you're like, uh, you, you may you may be looking at your watch and trying to figure out an exit, you know, and, and so uh, don't worry. Uh, the, our whole goal of this this series is to really kind of uncrazy the book of Revelation. And, uh, and so, I, I, you know, I'm not going to, like I said, I'm not going to... Uh, uh, pretend that it's not difficult to understand, uh, but it is. It is a very, very valuable book, and hopefully, my hope is that you you walk away from this series much less uh, afraid of the book and much less, you know, confused by it. And instead, really, really encouraged by it. Um, so, you know, if you're this person, we had a conference here yesterday, a leadership conference where several other churches joined us, and, and uh, it was a really good time. But we, uh, you know, it, it, we had speakers. It was a, a video stream thing. And so we had speakers on the screen. And then we were all at tables, you know, filling in the blanks on our sheets. And, and uh, one of the speakers at one point in his talk uh, just completely went over one of the blanks. And I looked around the room because I know, because <laughs> I really enjoy uh, uh, witnessing the uh, complete 
downward spiral of type A people. And, um, and so I looked around the room and sure enough, uh, people are like, did you get that? Did you, did he say it? And I miss it, you know, and everybody's scrambling, I got, you know, and it's like, I can see my wife's one of those type A people. And it's like, I could just see, she's not gonna be able to sleep tonight until she figures out what went in that blank. And, and, and so if you're that person that, you know, uh, you're, you're the type A person that you got to fill in all the blanks. And if you approach revelation that way, like I need all the answers, I need to fill in all my blanks. Uh, you're going to be really upset. You're not going to get much sleep because I don't think revelation is meant to give us all the answers. Instead, I think it's really, uh, given to us, uh, to give us things to pray about and to ponder about. Um, uh, there's something about God, thank God that he, um, like we can't figure out God. He's very mysterious. He's very, there's, you know, you'll never fully understand God. That's good news. That's not, that shouldn't be a frustration to you. That's good news. I know how simple my mind is, how simple my mind works. I, we don't want a God that I can figure. I'm impressed by, you know, you know, in the evening when I get undressed and I, if I can kick up a sock in the air and catch it, that impresses me. Right. And so I, we don't need this mind to be able to figure out God. We, we want a God that there's still, you know, as much as we study, as much as we get close to him, there needs to be some level of, of mystery there, uh, that sets him apart from the rest of us. And revelation really gives us a lot of that mystery. I don't know if any of you ever watched that old series lost where it was just, you know, that you'd have a season that, you know, brought up 20 or 30 questions and you'd get a season finale that answered two of them. And then asked an additional hundred questions and, you know, going into the next season. And so revelation is a little bit that way where we get some answers, but we also, you know, there, there's just a lot, to, a lot of that we kind of sit and look at. I'm not a big, you know, art buff or anything, but I do enjoy good art. Um, I'm not the guy that will sit and stare at a black dot for hours and ponder the meaning of my life. But, but I, I do like. Um, well, there's one painting in particular that I really love. It's by Rembrandt. It's a different Rembrandt, but, uh, it's called, um, the return of the prodigal. It's a beautiful painting. It's very dark, uh, but it just shows the prodigal son on his knees, kind of hugging his father around the waist, his father really lovingly embracing him back, you know, from the parable that Jesus told the older brother off to the side, kind of looking judgingly at what's going on. And there's a couple of mysterious figures in the background. Not sure what's happening with those guys. But it's a, it just, I love, I can just, in fact, it's the, the uh, wallpaper on my phone. I can look at that picture all day long because there's just something beautiful about it that really reminds me of how much God loves me. But there's also a lot about that painting that I'm not sure what the artist was trying to convey. It's, it's a little mysterious too. Uh, but I like to look at it nonetheless. And I think Revelation is a bit that way. It gives us some beautiful things to look at and some really incredible things to ponder about who God is and what he's all about. Um, so let's dive into this. Let me catch you up to where we are, especially if this is your first time in, in church and you haven't been a part of the series yet. Um, revelation one, we talked about, we, John gets this, you know, the apostle John, he gets this big vision of Christ glorified. And, uh, it's, it's kind of this big, um, and, you know, miraculous or, or a fabulous view of, of Christ, uh, in his glorified state, uh, very, very beautiful thing. Then he goes into chapters two and three and Christ sends out these letters to seven churches. They're, they're to churches and cities that we would call the Eastern part of Turkey today. And, uh, and these, these letters serve as a reminder to all of us as churches of what a healthy church should look like. Uh, give us something to aim at in terms of being the healthy church that God has called us to be. Last week we looked at John then gets kind of ushered into this vision of being in the throne room of God. 
beautiful, beautiful vision. Uh, you know, there are things in there that represent all of creation worshiping God and all of God's children worshiping God and that sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, then there's the scroll that shows up. A scroll holds God's plan for how he will set this whole universe correct again after it's been so eaten up and beaten up by, by sin and evil. And, uh, but it's sealed, the scroll is sealed by seven seals. And, um, and so, you know, they discover, you know, in the conversation that happens in that chapter, no one is found worthy to open up the seals. No one's found worthy. And then suddenly a voice cries out, uh, behold, the lion of Judah, the conquering king, he is, he is worthy to open up the seal. He alone is worthy to open up the seals that, that, that seal up this scroll. And John hears that announced, behold, the lion of Judah. And as he hears that announced, he turns to look at the lion instead of what he sees is the lamb, a slaughtered lamb, uh, the suffering servant that David talked about earlier. Uh, that's the vision that he sees that Christ is not only our victorious king. He is also uh, the sacrifice, uh, that slaughtered lamb that, that, that took on our sin for us so that we could live in a right relationship with, with God. Beautiful, beautiful image, right? So then we, we head into the chapters we're hitting, we're hitting today, and we're going to start opening up these seals. We're going to open up six of the seven seals today, and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll hit the seventh one next week. But, but as we look at this, we're getting into some territory uh, of some terminology that some of you might be familiar with if you've watched any good you know, sci-fi movies or westerns or whatever. You might have heard the term, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, uh, and that's a really scary sounding term, term, uh, unnecessarily scary sounding. Actually, uh, the Bible doesn't actually call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's just these, uh, you know, riders on these four different colored horses. Um, and we're going to talk about what, the, what this means, uh, what this means, but this is what I want you to get as before we open up these seals, uh, this, a lot of times this has been viewed as the seals as some sort of sequence of events that will lead up to uh, the return of Christ. And I want to challenge that thinking this morning and say that I'm not sure that it's so much a sequence, a chronology of events, but rather more of a symphony. Um, Jamie, my wife, she uh, plays uh, French horn. She has ever since uh, before I've known her. And, um, and she plays currently with the Solano uh, County Symphony. And it's beautiful. I really enjoy going to those concerts. I, she, the French horn, I think, is one of the most beautiful instruments, not, not only physically, but just in terms of the way it sounds. It's just a rich, rich brass sound. And, and French horns are featured well in all the Star Trek theme songs, which I love so much. And, and so uh, anyway, but I really enjoy going and listening to her play. So not only do I go, get to go to those concerts and listen to her play with the symphony and hear these beautiful works of art uh, being played live, uh, but I get to hear her practice too. And I'll tell you that the practice is much different than the show. Much, much different than the show. So Jamie will be all excited. She'll, she'll get her music in the mail and, and she'll start looking, oh, we're going to play this and I love this one. And you know, maybe it, sometimes it'll be a, a famous movie theme or something like that. Oh, we get to play Harry Potter, you know, or whatever. And, and she's really excited about that. And I'm like, oh, great. And so she's like, I got to practice for a little bit before I go to rehearsal. So she'll start, she'll get out her horn. She'll start practicing her piece. It doesn't sound anything like Harry Potter at all. Like, it's like, you know, she'll just be, she'll, she'll just tap her foot. I guess I'm going to tap my foot. She'll tap her foot. Boop, boop. Boop, boop. That, I mean, that, that's it. And I'm like, wow, that's great, baby. <laughs> you know? 
That's really good. And, and, and so, uh, but when you get to the show and it all comes together, then you, then suddenly it's recognizable. It's beautiful. It's, and it's awesome. And I think that's actually what's going on with these seven seals. It's not necessarily a dot, dot, dot chronology. This is going to happen in this, but it's actually all this stuff that's kind of happened at once. And when it all comes together, it seems to somewhat make sense. And, uh, and so as we dive into these seven seals, kind of keep that in mind. So revelation chapter six, if you're using one of the Bibles from the back, we're on page uh, 1031, 1031. All right. So it says this, John is talking. He says, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, <coughs> pardon me, opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, as we see this rider with a white horse and he's got a white robe and a crown and a bow and the whole thing. And, um, pardon me. He, um, a lot of times that's, uh, we assume, uh, I've heard people assume that this is Jesus uh, coming out first. I don't think this is Jesus at all. Actually, Jesus does come out later on in the prophecy on a riding a white horse and you know, that sort of thing, but this is not him. I, I think when, when you see the context of what's going on here, you'll realize that this is not him. So here we get this image of, of this kind of a victorious uh, conqueror. He's just going about conquering and conquering and conquering. And I think what's actually uh, being presented to us here is an image of a, uh, of a king, a ruler, a warlord, kind of an egomaniacal figure who just wants to do nothing but go around conquering and conquering and conquering and conquering. And obviously, when you have people in power like that, the little man, you know, the common person usually gets trampled underneath their feet. Uh, but it's this this kind of big figure that's just going around conquering. Look at look how it ties into the next one. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, "Come!" And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And I think what's being represented here is the idea of conflict and war. So you have the, the people that usually lead these things going around trying to conquer. They can't get enough of conquering people. Then you have war and conflict, that whole spirit kind of evil that happens when war comes upon a people and comes upon a nation. That's what's represented here in the second seal. And when he opened the third seal, it says, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. This gets weird. Had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. All right? So that's very odd. Very odd language. Why, you know, what's going on there? So this is what we know. A denarius, uh, it, was, it was like a coin. It was basically a day's wages, a full day's wages. A, a, the common person could expect to earn a denarius a day. And uh, a quart of wheat would be about the amount it would take to feed yourself uh, for one day. Or the three quarts, three quarts, three quarts of uh, of barley, about what you would expect to need to get to feed your whole family. So a quart of wheat for a denarius. Uh, in other words, a day's worth of food for a day's wage, a day's worth of food for your family for a day's wage. In other words, uh, you've got people that are working and all they can do is sustain themselves day to day to day. They can never, ever get ahead. And then it says this, but uh, do not harm the oil and wine. The oil and wine rep is, is what would have been uh, staples of the wealthy. 
staples of the wealthy. You know, they would have that in abundance all the time. Oil and wine would be a, a special day for anybody that wasn't wealthy, right? But the oil and the wine uh, would float in abundance with the wealthy. So it's like jack up the prices of, 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 of food for the common man, but let's keep the prices of oil and wine low because we don't want to affect us. And what's being pr- presented here is this idea of, of kind of economic injustice. We, we hear a lot of talk about economic injustice in our world today. And, and this has been around for, this is not new. It's been around for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of wealthy people who try to get wealthier on the backs of the poor. It's an evil. It's an evil in this world. It's not something that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders invented. The Bible has talked about it for long before anybody, any politician was talking about it. Uh, lots of warnings about wealthy people really taking advantage of the poor. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, a lot of times, ju- a lot of times when judgment would come upon the nation of Israel, it was because of this very fact, because they weren't caring for the poor. Because they weren't caring for the poor. So you have, you have egomaniacal leaders who just want to go around conquer, 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 conquer. You have, you have a spirit of war and violence that pervades everywhere. You have this economic injustice that's making the rich richer and keeping the poor uh, you know, uh, dependent and that sort of thing. And then the fourth seal. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a pale horse. It's not Clint Eastwood. It would be awesome if it was. Uh, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades, that's, Hades is the word for the grave, and Hades followed him. So Death, uh, you know, this rider comes in on a, on a name Death, and Hades, or the grave, is following him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And this is just simple representation of, of death, of death that's happening um, all around us. It's not... What's being painted here by these four riders on these four horses is not something that we should look forward to that's going to happen. Rather, these are just conditions of an evil fallen world that have always existed and will continue to always exist. Continue to always exist. Just this week. It took me about 30 seconds to find this, by the way. About 30 seconds. Let me read to you. Four headlines just from this week, and you could pick any week in history and find similar headlines. Four headlines. First one is this. Boko Haram leader mocks Nigerian army and the parents of the missing girls. Second headline. The U.S. to send 500 more troops to Iraq to battle ISIS. Third headline. Silicon Valley's middle class is shrinking as the wealthy prosper. Fourth headline. Aleppo, where children die, but the world does nothing. That's just from this week. These are, these are conditions, the, the, the things that these, these four writers represent. These are conditions that have been pervasive in our world since time and memoriam. And I think what's happened here is Jesus is looking at this situation and, and he's going, I see what's going on in the world. I know what you're under, especially this early church that was under persecution from the Roman government and from, from Jewish religious leaders and other people. He's like, I see what's happening. I know what you deal with on a day-in, day-out basis. And this is what you need to know as I have a plan. My first, the first point is this, that exploitation and death have an expiration date. This needs to be a great hope to you. Exploitation of people and death as a way of life, it has an expiration date. God has a plan to set all of this right, and that plan is going to come about through Jesus Christ. 
It's already started through Jesus Christ. It's already continuing through the work that we do as a church and that other churches do all around the world. As We, uh, we do our best to, to do meaningful work that makes this world look a little bit more like the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that work has a lasting impact as we move on into uh, you know, eternity. I'm not going to read these passages. I invite you to read them on your own just for the sake of time. Let me kind of sum up what happens when Jesus opens the fifth and the sixth seal. So when he opens up the fifth seal, there are those that were martyred for their faith, those who were killed for their faith. They're, they're seen kind of huddling under the altar in the throne room, and they're crying out for justice when this, when this fifth seal is open. They see these martyrs huddled together, crying out for justice. And they're told, they're given white robes, and they're told, just be patient. Just be patient. Justice is coming. And then when the sixth seal is open, this is what we see. All of a sudden there are natural disasters everywhere. Earthquakes and, you know, hurricanes and just all these, you know, fires and such. Natural disasters everywhere. And and then we see this image of those powerful people that tend to control things and and, uh, and tend to move only in, in what's in their own selfish interest. Those powerful people are now running for the caves and hiding for themselves from the judgment of God. And it's not so much, I think, a literal prediction of natural disaster so much as it is in, in apocalyptic. This book falls under what we call apocalyptic literature. So let me give you an example. If somebody was to write an apocalyptic tale of what happened on 9-11, they might, and rather than saying a couple of flames, Planes flew into a couple of buildings. The buildings came crushing down and thousands of lives were lost. You know, kind of factual, like we would report things. They might say things like the earth shook and fires raged and the sea boiled over. And that's, in other words, they would use this very uh, exaggerated, elaborate kind of natural disaster language for, um, for kind of earth-shattering, world-shattering events. And this is what's kind of going on here. And, and, it, and it's, it's all set in the context of judgment, that God is going to judge all the wickedness that these four, the first four writers represent. He's going to, all that's going to get judged. All that's going to be sorted out and be taken care of. He's, he told those, 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 those people who gave their lives for their faith, be patient, justice is coming. And here we see this, it's happening. All, the, all this judgment is actually happening. And the wicked are running for the hills to try to hide themselves from the judgment of God. Now, let's look. Well, first of all, before I do that, this idea of, uh, of, of this judgment, there's kind of this idea in Scripture, and, it's, and it, we see it here and we see it in other places in Scripture, where God often waits for evil to be fully ripened before he judges it. Not that he causes evil to grow, but he allows it to grow. The idea that there's a reference to this in uh, Genesis chapter 15, where there's a, a nation, the uh, Amorites, that were wicked. They needed to be destroyed, and uh, God's having a conversation with Abraham about it. And he's like, but not yet, but not yet. And he says this, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It's coming, judgment is coming, but I'm going to let that wickedness grow even more. And the, and the idea, and we see it here in Revelation, the idea is this, that when, when God finally, when his wrath is poured out and he finally judges everything, there will be no questions of why you're being judged. It will be obvious. No one will be able to say that's not fair or hide from the judgment of God because you will be able to look with your eyes plainly and see the actions of, 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 of the world and the way the world has gotten, you know, the state the world has come to. And you'll know, yeah, this is deserved. You won't be able to hide from that judgment when it comes. The world is ripening towards judgment. Now, that's dark. That's depressing. Hope's coming. Okay, here we go. Revelation chapter 7. 
says this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So this, this, all this natural disaster language of judgment and everything that's coming. Then we, then we see these angels holding back the four corners of the earth, and they're, they're holding at bay all the judgment, all the disaster that, that's going to come upon uh, uh, um, God's creation. They're holding at bay. They're not letting it quite come back. Then I saw another angel ascending from the, the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until here's the big until until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So there's this idea that, okay, before we release judgment, I want to make sure that everybody who's been faithful to me is protected from judgment. That's to come. We're sealing them. We're setting them aside. I'm giving them my special seal. We see a similar story in the Exodus story when the angel of death would come uh, over to Egypt and they would, they, would, they would put the blood on their doorposts so to, to escape God's judgment. It's that same kind of thing that's happening now here, a different sort of Exodus, so to speak. And he says this, So until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then I heard, heard, pay attention to that word, and then I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of, and on and on and on. He goes through all 12 tribes and says 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, until it equals 144,000. Now, historically, uh, or not, actually, no, sorry, not historically, but, but oftentimes, the uh, the concept that's written here has often been understood that uh, God will keep his covenant with Israel that he made in the Old Testament and Israel will be saved from judgment because God's a covenant-keeping God. As we move on to this next passage I'm getting ready, let me challenge that thinking just a little bit, just a little bit, okay? Pay attention. Revelation uh, 7, look at verse 9. So first he heard... Look, 144,000 of Israel that have been set aside, them and sealed, they'll be protected from the judgment, right? First he heard, and then he says this, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the lamp. So you remember last week when we were in the throne room, and he hears announced that uh, behold the lion of Judah, and as he turns expecting to see a lion, what he's actually see is the lamb, the slaughtered lamb. I think something's very similar has actually happened in this passage, where he hears announced, behold the hundred and forty four thousand. It's kind of this big number of completeness. The all of Israel basically is what it's saying. Behold Israel as a nation. Uh, uh, I've set them aside. I've sealed them. They'll be protected. He hears that announced. God's chosen people, Israel, announced. What he turns and sees with his eyes, though, is multitudes uncountable from every nation on earth, every tribe, every tongue. And it's this idea, actually, that runs all through the, the New Testament, that when Jesus came, what he did is he, he redefined who Israel is and centered that concept, not on the nation of Israel, not on the temple, not on the law, but on himself. And so 
The new Israel, we've talked about this in months past, the new Israel is, we're not talking about the physical nation of Israel or the the children of Abraham so much. We're talking about the spiritual children of Abraham. In other words, we're talking about us. All of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are a part of that uncountable number. We are the new Israel. I don't think what's going on here at all is some sort of prediction that the nation of Israel, because if if suddenly God decides in Revelation that, uh, you know, okay, I'm actually going to save Israel. All of the Israelites will be saved in in the coming judgment. To me, that completely undoes everything else that the New Testament taught. Why, why would suddenly there be this change in focus? And I know you can argue that, that uh, you know, there's this idea of God's covenant, but God's covenant was, was uh, uh, fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Israel was redefined through Jesus Christ. God is still faithful to his covenant, but now there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. We are all one nation, one people under Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's, the way, that's what kind of what's going on here. So... This is what you need to know. God's people will be victorious. God's people will be victorious. Now, the reason this is such good news, and yeah, earlier we, we saw this white rider show up, and he's, he's conquering, he's conquering, he's conquering. He's, he's got the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the whole white garb. and the, It was actually very common back in the day, and still is somewhat common today, that when somebody was victorious, they would, be, they would clothe themselves in bright white. It was like this image of their fidelity and their purity and, their, and almost like a godlike state type of thing. And they would present themselves to the people and I'm the victor. Or later on, when it came to the early Olympics, they would put those Olympic champions in a white, white uh, robe and, and a wreath on their head, that sort of thing, and, and, uh, and present them as the victors. Uh, there's a very specific reason. Uh, it was not an accident that Hillary Clinton's um, um, uh, wardrobe people chose that white pantsuit when she walked out on the stage to accept the nomination for her party. White has been historic, and I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting Hillary is some sort of antichrist figure or anything. I'm just saying when it comes to that color, that white color has been very symbolic for eons and eons of victory, of victory. Other presidents have come out in white. You know, I think uh, uh, Roosevelt, FDR, did the same thing. Came out in a white suit. White suits don't go over well for guys much today, but but back in the day, it was okay. So here, here's the thing: this idea of 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 these people who go around. Uh, conquering, 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 can't get enough conquering. They just want to conquer and they don't care who they trample over and they parade themselves in their victorious clothing and their victorious, uh, you know, uh, uh, this air about them. And God then says, uh, you, know, I, I, or, you know, he shows us this vision of all these people, countless people that were my children. They'll be protected from judgment. I, I've given them white robes, given them white robes. And what God is saying is all these other pretenders, those people who would tell you they're victorious and trample over you and to get to their victories and everything else, you know they are not the real deal. You guys will be the truly victorious. You guys. When I was a kid, I loved sports, loved playing sports. And um, uh, we, uh, when I was kind of late elementary age, we lived in this little town in Oklahoma, about 300 people. And it was a baseball town. We saw all the boys play baseball. And there was a, a, a guy there, a senior uh, by the name of Sammy Rambo. And he was the, the pitcher for our town's team. Incredible pitcher and just such a great name. I mean, who doesn't want to be called Sammy Rambo? And, and uh, just such a great name. And so uh, Sammy Rambo lived right across the street from my house. And, uh, and so he would come out. There was, a, there was a field back behind my house, and, and we would play, you know, ball back there. And had a little mound, you know, pitcher's mound. And he would come out and throw pitches. And, you know, 
our, you know, we'd do this with our hand when we caught his pitches and that sort of thing. But we all wanted to be like him. And so whenever any of us would pitch, we would pitch. He, every pitcher has a unique windup, right? And Sammy's windup was, you know, he would kind of, he would kind of get in, he would come back. And then when he'd get that leg up, he would hold it for what seemed like, I can't believe I'm holding it this long. I'm so impressed with myself. And so he would hold it for what seemed like an eternity. And then he would just release, right? And we just thought that was the, so we were all out there, you know, stumbling on the mound, trying to hold it like Sammy, you know, couldn't quite ever get it. And none of us could pitch as fast as him. A few years later, you know, Michael Jordan comes to fame and I'm playing basketball and all of us want to be like Mike. Uh, now, back in this time, we're talking mid eighties, like no, like, like all of, whenever they issued our uniforms, we all had these very short shorts. You remember the eighties basketball uniform, short shorts, right? But Mike wasn't, Michael Jordan wasn't wearing short shorts. He had long baggy shorts. And so whenever, you know, the, the, the school would buy uniforms, there would always be one or two fat kid uniforms. And we all fought over the fat kid shorts. Like we wanted the, the biggest baggiest shorts we could possibly get because we wanted to be like Mike. And we'd be out there, you know, practicing and playing in the games, tongues wagging out, trying to do everything, ah, you know, and just jack and bleeding tongues and, you know, the whole thing. And, and, but none of us could ever, all we were doing was dressing up like these guys, trying to be like these guys. We weren't them though. And Jesus is saying, you know, all these people who have taken advantage of you, all these people who would, who would uh, get their wealth and their power off of your backs that would pretend to be victorious. That's all they are as pretenders. They're just dressing up. Only I have the ability to actually hand out the white robes and you're getting one. You're getting one. That's, that's incredible news. That's incredible encouragement for us. Now, look at verse 14 of, of, of Revelation 7. <laughs> He's describing these people in the white robes. It says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he'll guide them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Such a beautiful, beautiful way to close this, this little section. We get this image of like, we all want to be cared for by God. We want God to take care of our issues. But God, in this picture, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't guard us, protect us, make us victorious by giving us everything that we want. He doesn't even necessarily in this image do it so much by fighting for us. He just simply, he does it with his presence. Can I challenge you to maybe more than anything else you pray, pray for the presence of God in your life. Pray for the presence. This is what I know. If I feel the presence of God in my life, I'm not afraid. I don't worry. I have the confidence that God has this under control. And then this other beautiful image there towards the end of that passage I just read. He says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne, that slaughtered lamb, that, that servant, will be their shepherd. The lamb now becomes the shepherd. The shepherd cares for the flock, feeds the flock protects the sheep, cleans them up, even cradles them, cradles the little lambs and cares for them, develops a bond, a relationship with them so that they know his voice, 
They follow him when they hear his voice. The lamb becomes the shepherd and he'll wipe away all of our tears. All of our tears. It's a very odd uh, juxtaposition of ideas here where all this wrath and all this, you know, the stuff that's coming to punish evil and to set things right and to, to be just, for God to be a just God. And then on the backside of it, all this care and all this love. It's really beautiful, actually. This, the concept that God's wrath actually flows very naturally from his love. God's wrath flows naturally from his love. Now, we get really hung up on the idea of a vengeful God, a wrath, uh, you know, a wrath-filled God. Because, you know, we, we hear talked uh, and sung about how much, so much about how God is love. I don't like to focus on the wrath of God. It just it makes us uncomfortable, and people ask questions, and we're not sure how to answer those questions. And so it may not make sense to you that God's wrath would flow from his love, but let me put it to you this way. If, you're, if you've ever been a parent, you know exactly what this is. If you've ever had a friend that was being abused, you know exactly what this is. That when you genuinely love someone and you see that person abused or mistreated. Let me just tell you this. You, you got a pastor here. I do not mind at all doing a night in jail to pour out a little wrath on the behalf of my kids. Not at all. You guys might fire me, but it'd be worth it anyway. It'd be worth Why? Because I love my kids. I love my kids. Anybody tries to abuse my kids, something's going down. I'm not putting up with that. You wouldn't put up with it either. Something's going down. And this is God not looking at the world going, oh, you guys have broken my rule, so I'm, I'm angry and I'm going to punish everybody. That's not what's happening. This is God looking at his creation and at his children going, look how you have abused my family. Yeah, it's getting ready to get real up in here. It's getting ready to get real. God's wrath flows from his love. God's wrath does not make him a, a, a vindictive you know, deity, it makes him a loving God. If God has no wrath, if God has no sense of justice, when there's so much evil goes on in this world that we read about and hear about every single day of the week, then he's not a good God. It's his wrath. It's not only his love, but it's his wrath that makes him a good God. Can I just challenge you to Submit yourself to him in such a way that you are counted in that number of countless people who will wear a white robe, who will be victorious. One of God's children, one of God's children. And that just means you submit yourself to Jesus Christ. You allow him to be your savior. You allow him to, to, to be the Lord of your life, the master, the boss of your life. You just give your life to him. Give your life to him. I want us to close today with the, the prayer that we prayed last week, the Lord's Prayer. You know, I, I, it seemed to fit in so well with the sermon last week. And then this week, as I was thinking through it, I was like, I feel like that prayer is actually so closely connected to this whole book, this whole book of Revelation. It really is the act of praying for this prophecy to come down, to come true, that God's kingdom would take place this way. So would you just pray? Let's close this way. Would you just pray this prayer with me from Matthew chapter six? Pray with me. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. God has a plan to do just that, to deliver us from evil. Let's get with him on his plan and be encouraged that whatever state your life is in, whatever drama is going on in your relationships or in your career or in your financial status or uh, whatever anxiety you're experiencing about the condition of the world that we live in and the world that we're leaving to our kids and our grandkids, just put all that to bed and trust in a God who says, stay with me. You'll be the victorious ones. You'll be the victorious ones. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for your word to us today. You're such a good God. You're good to us in the way that you forgive us, the way that you sent your son so that we could live in relationship with you and deal with the problem of our sin that we were powerless to deal with ourselves. You're good in the fact that you are just and that you uh, do and will punish evil and ultimately will punish it uh, in an ultimate way. And we anxiously await the day when you make all things new again, when you make all things new again. So God, keep us faithful, keep us close to you. Um, As we cry out to you for justice and we cry out to you for mercy and uh, you give us that white robe and you tell us to be patient, it's coming. Give us that patience. Give us that hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.